Section 28 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christopher Gilson. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton, Section 28 at the sign of the world's end an englishman looks at the jew by g k chesterton in one respect mr t w h crossland has a right to be regarded as a representative englishman under the modern conditions of england he has two qualities that are both national and popular in the modern phase of our nation and our populace first he has prejudices rather than principles and second those prejudices are vitalized by a sense of humor prejudices are sometimes very valuable but they are only valuable to a people that has lost its enlightenment and is left to hold its traditions in the dark in that lack of enlightenment the sense of humor is a sort of heat that supplies the place of light i do not mean this in contempt of mr crossland for there is very much the same purely instinctive intelligence in charles dickens dickens managed to reach humanity without history or philosophy and that is not a small achievement but dickens did suffer from his lack of true enlightenment and never more than when it made him the dupe of false enlightenment there could not be a better example than his attitude to the jews he produced fagin by instinct and fagin is still alive he produced raya to order and raya was born dead in this sense it is true that the victorians were limited not by experience but by convention they saw much more than they allowed themselves to say indeed the story in which raya occurs our mutual friend has always seemed to me in this respect quite a curiosity of literature consciously or not the author is a crypto anti-semite the story has stuck into it this single dummy labelled an honest jew who is not a jew at all because he is not a human being at all and at the same time the story simply swarms with dishonest jews who are too dishonest even to call themselves jews veneering is obviously a jew lamley is obviously a jew fascination fledgeby is obviously a jew all lamley's business friends with their thick rings and gold pencil cases are obviously jews i do not know whether it was in innocence or in irony that dickens refrained from calling them jews but in this as in other respects there was a lack of lucidity and order about the instinctive ironies of men like dickens and it is a compliment to mr crossland to say that he shares with dickens a defect he shows both the advantage and the disadvantages in his book on the jews the fine old hebrew gentleman the disadvantage of a man who has not cleared his thoughts with theory is not merely that he acts on prejudice in practice it is also that his mind will tend to be a tangle of prejudices old and new with one prejudice positively obstructing the practical utility of another thus while mr crossland tells the truth about a man like mond he is unable even to see the truth about a man like disraeli merely because it is a tory tradition to be duped by disraeli he is indulgent to that aggressive alien immigrant 
upon the astonishing ground that he made speeches at diocesan conferences. I feel sure Sir Alfred Mond would make any number of speeches at diocesan conferences and prove in the blandest fashion that he was on the side of the angels. Similarly, he has slightly to soften the story of Marconi merely to suit the lingering legend, which seems so pathetic today, that Mr. Lloyd George was a great military patriot who won the war. But here again Mr. Crossland's powerful genius for humour comes to the rescue. It is indeed an admirable example of his method. In the very act of verbally minimising the Marconi connection, he insinuates an admirable thrust of irony by referring to the old story of the servant girl and the very little baby. By that mere allusion, he dashes into dust all the excuses of the politicians, even the excuses that he seems himself to be suggesting. He could hardly imply more sardonically the essential ethic of common sense, that the crossing of such a borderline of conduct is never a matter of degree, honour is not judged by the size of bribes any more than chastity by the size of children. But that passage is typical in another way of the curious and interesting personality of Mr. Crossland. He is the representative Englishman in that his humour is real, but he is also the representative modern Englishman in that his humour is not free. He has not been allowed to use it freely. He has been no freer than a thousand other men in Fleet Street who have had to live in fear of the libel law and the sack. The hypocrisy of our public life has hardened his humour into sneering or driven it to die away in mere grumbling like that of a mob dispersed by cavalry. Hence arise two characteristics in his literary style which make it exceedingly hard to criticise. One is mystification. There are passages of impenetrable darkness in which it is impossible to discover exactly what the writer does seriously mean in the labyrinth of asides and allusions and slangy exaggerations and satirical understatements, many of them very funny of their kind, but the best in this kind are but shadows. The other quality which goes with it is irresponsibility, and there also, alas, the voice is very largely the voice of the English people, in the sense of the English populace. Never for one moment do we feel that this Englishman, however justly angry at being ruled by aliens, is claiming any real right to rule himself. He would as soon claim to control the weather whenever he grumbles at the weather. He is not a democrat, not a citizen, and therefore not a ruler, nor one desiring to be a ruler. He is a spectator. His grumbling is like the groaning of the crowd around the scaffold of Charles I. His laughter is like the laughter of a patient mob, waiting to see the Lord Mayor's show. He is a type of nation of spectators who have looked on at the spectacle of their own history. The significance of this book about the Jews is that the man and the mob are now thoroughly annoyed. At the beginning, the author faces fully and frankly the profoundly Jewish character of the South African war. The point is essential, if only as showing how the Jewish problem cuts across all our party divisions and can never really be used as a party cry. The Morning Post has shown some creditable courage in printing facts about the Jewish problem that nobody else would print. 
But the Morning Post was as much a tool of the Jews, though an unconscious tool, when it supported the destruction of the Boer nation, as is any liberal paper today in supporting the ordinary liberal policy of ruining the Polish nation. Since the Liberal Party seems to have now devoted itself chiefly to the defense of plutocracy, to the toleration of bribery, to the establishment of a Jewish oligarchy over a subject race of Arabs, and to being on the side of the big battalions of Prussia and Russia against the idealism of the Poles, it is only fair to remember that the other party was quite as much to blame, or rather more to blame. The Conservative Party would hardly have been in existence at all without Disraeli at the head of it, and Rothschild at the back of it. The one great occasion on which the real imperialist really waved the Union Jack and called specially on the British Empire was a war waged in the interests of German Jews. I have already noted that this realism is rather relaxed in dealing with Disraeli, and to some extent in dealing with the Marconi case, and indeed it is the defect of this instinctive and humorous style that is not easy to see upon what principle the pressure varies in lightness. Sometimes the author is inclined to let the Jews off lightly, where the common sense of the whole world condemns them most decisively. He is inclined to palliate that usury which is confessed by their own reformers and condemned by their own religion. And this, I fancy, merely from some obscure subconscious instinct that an Englishman must defend commercialism against a vague enemy that is really Catholicism. On these things of common morals and common sense, he is really too Semitic in his sympathy, though not being sufficiently Christian in his philosophy. But on the other hand, while he excuses Jews for things which I and everybody else condemn them, he has no hesitation about condemning them for things about which I, for one, am decidedly doubtful. He seems to accept the protocols of the elders of Zion, not so much without doubt as without thought, and I have always been very careful not to base my own case against Jewish plutocracy on the protocols. There may have been such a document written by such a group, but I am certain that most of the harm done by Jews in the world is not done as part of such a conspiracy. If the passages quoted were really written by Jews, then the Jewish psychology is indeed a thing apart, for I confess I cannot conceive Europeans writing about themselves. We have befooled and corrupted the rising generation of the Gentiles by educating them in principles and theories known by us to be thoroughly false. There is only one sentence that sounds to me human. Politics have nothing in common with morals. That is so piteously stupid that it might be said by a man, and even by a German Jew, if he were a very German Jew. But assuming that Mr. Crossland is right about the protocols, there is one lesson that he and his school might really learn from them. The elders of Zion distinctly say that they have no preference for revolutionary, over-reactionary ideals, and are as ready to be capitalist as communist. And anyhow, we all know that the Jewish problem was capitalist long before it was communist. The same truth is involved in a quotation from a much higher authority, a poem by Mr. Zangwill, 
full of the fine self-criticism of a patriot. Of Mr. Zangwill's injudicious intervention in a Christian problem of war, I think much as Mr. Crossland does. But I do not think it just or generous to quote Mr. Zangwill's criticisms of his people against him or them. It is the glory of a people to produce a prophet who can rebuke it. In this case, anyhow, the important words run, taking all colours or none, lying a fox in the covert, leaping an ape in the sun. Mr. Crossland really speaks for those who hardly noticed that the Jew was taking all colours until, as he puts it, the colour they took was red. Then the English Tory began to see red. He forgot that the same chameleon had taken the colours of true blue and primrose yellow, and because his view is thus partial and entangled in prejudices, there is something a little helpless about his belated anti-Semitism. The Englishman is hardly enough of a European to defend England against a European evil, for here, in the last resort, I confess myself much more troubled about the English problem than about the Jewish problem. Fascinating as is the figure of Mr. Zangwill, my imagination is more and more haunted by the image of Mr. Crossland. I seem to see, as the type of my own nation, a tragic figure, deceived and thwarted in a thousand ways, fed on prejudices, starved of religion and rational codes, finding its inspiration in instinct, but still keeping as the gift of God and the glory of the island blood, the unconquerable love of country and the power to jest. End of section 28